All right. Your handouts say that we are going to be um, preaching through Galatians 5.16. That is not the case. Um, As you heard earlier, Pastor Dave is not feeling well this morning, so again, keep him in your prayers. Um, Rather, this morning we'll be preaching from Matthew chapter 5. Verses 43 through 48. Um, This is not a a part of the Respectable Sin series that we are in, Um, although I guess you could say that this is a sin that we don't talk a lot about, and um, I would argue that many of us are fairly guilty of, and that is um, hating our enemies. And we are called to love our enemies. And um, so while this is not a series on, uh, part of the series of Respectable Sins, Um, Nonetheless, this is a sin that we must be reminded of frequently, um, lest we be guilty of transgressing this command. Um, Before we start our text this evening, I want to preface with this. Um, uh, Matthew 5, uh, we know, is the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount crushes us uh, if we have a poor understanding of the relationship between law and the gospel. Um, it may very well drive us to despair if we forget the gospel when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, C.S. Lewis had this to say um, about the Sermon on the Mount. I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So if we read this passage... Uh, through legalistic lenses, that is, if you obey, you will be justified, um, then you will become discouraged because you have not obeyed, and you'll begin to question your salvation. Because if you are looking to the law for salvation, that means you have not placed the substance of your salvation upon Christ alone. You remember that we are saved by Christ alone, uh, through faith, through grace alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Um, And it's not by our own strivings that we are saved. Um, So I'd like to think that we all have a decent understanding of the law and grace. Um, And if not, um, it may be the shame of um, the elders in this church. We try to make that known week after week. Um, But even if we do have a good understanding of the relationship between uh, the two, uh, this is not too elementary for us, right? We must be reminded of this continually because uh, so often, whether we realize it or not, we do think that to, in one degree or another, we are justified by our works. You know, we feel good about the things we've done. And if we're not careful, we can begin to think that that is what saves us. So Galatians 5.4, Paul tells us, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Right? So um, as people who still wrestle with the flesh, we have a tendency to set the law and grace um, against each other. We can overemphasize the law becoming legalists, and we don't want to be legalists, or we can overemphasize grace, to which I used to years and years ago. And then if you do that, you become antinomian, which is to be lawless, um, anti-nomos, anti-law. So in essence, using the fact that we are saved by grace, um, this is using the fact that we are saved by grace as an excuse to sin. What's it matter? Um. We must understand that though the law in one sense does act as a sledgehammer to knock us on our faces, as Lewis suggested, it does so in order to show us our great need for a great Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ who obeyed the law perfectly for us. So, as a people who are hidden in Christ, the law no longer pronounces condemnation on us, right? Paul tells us in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and though there is no condemnation for the people of God, right, we are still meant to live it. Uh, we are meant to live as people who are, not, uh, uh, who are free in Christ, who obeyed the law for us. Uh, so we must remember that we have been saved for good works. Right? We have been saved for good works. Uh, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. 
so we do not come to these commands to ob- obtain a right standing with God. Uh, Jesus tells us that you are a Christian, so behave this way. Uh, this really goes hand in hand, really, with what Pastor Dave spoke on uh, last week. Uh, we are to be what we are, and what we are is freed from sin and forgiven of our sin, and so live like it, right? So uh, while that truth may still be fresh in our minds, I wanted to preface the sermon with that fundamental backdrop uh, that we are God's people who have been brought out of slavery to sin, and so then we as obedient children are now free to follow the commands of God and to strive to obey them without fear of condemnation. Um, As you've heard it said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone, right? Works will accompany faith. So, at this time, if you would please stand uh, for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. This is Matthew 5, 43-48. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect let's pray heavenly father i must admit that i feel insufficient to preach on the topic of loving our enemies for i know that i fail quite miserably in this arena of my own life i'm sure we all do in one degree or another and so we look to you this morning to instruct us and teach us. Heavenly Father, we rely on you to do the work in our hearts today. Pull up the weeds that have embedded themselves in our hearts. Make our hearts good soil, ready for the seed of truth to be planted there, that it would flourish and produce kind hearts. Lord, we ask that you would help us this morning to hear the warnings of your word, to hear your corrections, and give us understanding. We ask that you would do these things for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. All right, for those who are note-takers, uh, there will be three headings, I guess you could call them, and then some application. Uh, so first, we will consider the teaching of the Pharisees. Second, we will consider the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. And third, we will consider the reasons that Jesus gives for this teaching. And then uh, lastly, we will look at some um, application or thoughts to consider in light of this teaching. So first, uh, the teaching of the Pharisees, verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says to them, you have heard it said. So he is about to make a contrast between the laws and traditions, which had come first from the law of God contained in the writings of Moses, um, and then were later twisted by sinful minds. And as a result... Uh, the laws that were taught um, had departed from the original commands that God had given, and they made a human addition to God's law. And like all other additions to God's law, uh, they are a wicked and a carnal addition, which stated that you shall hate your enemy. Uh, So the first part of the law is true. Uh, It's a recitation of Leviticus 19, verse 18, which tells us, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But the way that they had interpreted neighbor quickly gave way to a twisting of God's law. They understood neighbor to mean Israelite. So they were fellow Jews. They were taught Jews must love Jews. 
but they must regard everyone else um, not only as an alien, uh, but an enemy. In fact, they would even suggest that it was their right and duty to hate their enemy, uh, which would have been all Gentile unbelievers. Uh, They often consider Gentiles to be dogs, and it appears that they have may have gotten their justification for this view for a couple reasons other than a sinful bend of the human heart. And one may have been because God had commanded them to kill the Canaanites, right, as well as many other tribes. And later they were told that the memory of the Amalekites was to be blotted out from under heaven because of their wickedness, right? So they had a campaign. They were to destroy these nations. But we must remember that that was in a specific time for a specific purpose, in order that the wicked nations who were enemies of God would be punished so that God's people would have the land that the Lord said belonged to them, right? Though God, God had said, this land belongs to you, so take it. It rightfully belongs to you. And from his people in that land, a Savior would come. So there is a purpose in this historical context. It has nothing to do with Israel enacting personal vengeance on their enemies, rather hatred for them. If they did that, it would not go well. They could not just go whenever they wanted. They had to go when God told them to go. So God was the one who said, hey, now you go and take the land. So it has nothing to do with personal vengeance. Rather, it was God's command for his glory in judging the wicked and being faithful to his people to inherit what rightly belonged to them by God's decree. So that's one contributing factor is they had to destroy these people. And so, yeah, they're enemies. We, we hate them. Don't treat them well. Kill them. Another contributing factor that likely aided in Israel's hatred for their enemies is uh, maybe even the imprecatory psalms, wherein judgment and curses are called down upon wicked people. Um, And though it may seem like it, I know that this is difficult, um, we need to remember that um, imprecatory psalms don't necessarily deal with the personal vengeance of the psalmists, right? The psalmists don't go out and enact vengeance, um, they pray to God and ask that he would deliver them, that he be the one who would enact vengeance according to his will. We see this from David, right? He would not kill Saul. Saul tried to murder him multiple times. He's like, I can't harm him. But then you hear the Psalms that he's prayed, and it sounds like he's saying some pretty aggressive stuff. So uh, imprecatory Psalms are concerned with the glory of God and the vindication of his church. Um, the psalmist would cry out that the Lord would be the one who administers justice accordingly, um, not people. Um, something to consider um, is that a fair number, I don't know about all of them, but a fair number of them in the imprecatory psalms, uh, we see that there is a cry for the people to repent as well. So there's a, 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 a dual cry of justice and repentance for the people that they would, they would look to God. Um, so I know while many of us may struggle with imprecatory psalms, the Jews may have used it also to consider the Gentiles their enemies and to crush them. Um, but one thing I want to place before you as we consider imprecatory psalms this morning um, is that really this is, a, this is really a constant or a consistent cry of the, of the universal church in one degree or another, right? Um, we pray imprecatory psalms or prayer every time we pray for the Lord Jesus to return. Because that's what happens when he returns, is he, uh, he comes and receives his bride and he punishes the wicked. So whether we realize it or not, there's a constant tension in the Christian life where we cry out, How long, Lord, must we suffer? When will your righteousness come forth and destroy the wicked? But we also want the wicked to come and see the, the grace and mercy shown for them in Christ Jesus. So um, there's, a, there's kind of a, a walking act, a, a balancing act that we have to have as we consider our enemies Um, and the justice and judgment of God, and also our desire for them to come to faith. But the scribes and the Pharisees knew nothing of this delicate balance. They taught that Jews should love their neighbor, who were fellow Jews, and they were to hate their enemies, who were Gentiles. But we find no such command in the Old Testament to hate enemies. In fact, in Exodus 23, we read God's command, which says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. What this is saying is that even if a hardship befalls your enemy, 
you are to have his or her best interest in mind. If your enemy's ox goes astray and you find it, bring it back to him so that he may experience no loss, just as you would want anyone else to do for you. Now here in verse 43, we read of the teaching of the Pharisees, which cuts against the command of God, right? So uh, they're, they're not agreeing with what God has said about uh, what we are to do with regard to our enemies. And so I want to take kind of a side note here um, with what we are to do with this. Uh, we are not to take instructions from the world, and we must not blindly and carelessly receive instruction from the religious just because they are respected. The Pharisees were respected. They taught something that's contrary to God's law. And so we, too, must be careful of what we hear and what we believe. Uh, we are, first and foremost, children of God. We take instruction from our Heavenly Father, from His Word. And so be, be mindful, beware. There are many teachers who you may have learned many great things from, from, who may have taught you very valuable things. And there are likely many teachers who have had a lasting impact or mark on your faith. But remember this, they are fallible, as the Pharisees are fallible. And we are seeing many teachers today depart from sound doctrine in order to gain favor from the unbelieving world. So be watchful, be mindful. We remember that God's word is the rule by which we measure all things. And a teaching is only as good as it is in line with Scripture. So Scripture is the authority over our lives. If someone teaches contrary to what God has said, we do not listen to them. God's rule is the measure by which we test all that we hear. So we must be Bereans. This reaches uh, not only to well-known ministers who have a wide audience, but this applies even to the elders and the teaching in this church. Test what you hear. We are not popes. We have an obligation to teach and preach the word of God. And if we say, if what we say contradicts scripture, then we must be confronted. All right. So here Jesus is confronting the teaching of the world and the Pharisees. And so we must do the same thing. Be careful of what you hear. Test it by scripture. <clears throat> so in the following verse or the next verse, Jesus is going to uh, correct this false teaching they have received from the Pharisees. So. We have heard the teaching of the Pharisees. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And here's a second heading. This is the teaching of Jesus, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is what we are commanded to do as the people of God who bear the name of Christ. And Jesus really is just restating Leviticus 19.18, which we read earlier, which is to love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Everyone you come in contact with. So are your enemies your neighbors? Yes, they are your neighbors. Love your neighbor, even if your neighbor is your enemy. So who are our enemies? What is an enemy? An enemy in its uh, most extreme sense is someone who is animated by a deep-seated hatred for you, and it could be for any number of reasons. It could be because you are a Christian. You love God, and you love His law, and because you love God and His law, you are unashamed to proclaim the exclusivity of Christ and the objectivity of morality. And you will in turn make unbelievers really, really uncomfortable and consequently very angry. You will earn enemies when you preach Christ. Uh, it doesn't take long to see that. Right? We know social media, uh, news outlets. Um, and because they hate God and they hate his law, uh, they, by extension, they will hate you. Because you are in the light and they are in darkness and the darkness hates light. So our enemies may be co-workers, they may be employers or employees who use you and take advantage of you. They could be family members who say all kinds of evil things about you and slander your name. Maybe they mock you, maybe they're condescending to you. It could be that uh, maybe it's a literal neighbor who lives next door to you, who has no regard for your personal property, 
or maybe they even show open hostility towards you. Maybe at times your enemy can be your spouse. Maybe your relationship has been strained and you constantly hold each other in contempt because both parties see each other as, as not pulling the weight around the household that should be pulled. And there very well may be some truth to that. Uh, your enemy could be someone who used to be your friend. But now for any number of reasons, they seek to harm your reputation. And of course, in light of the political climate we find ourselves in today, your enemy likely is anyone who is on the opposite end of the political spectrum that you are on. As we have seen, uh, the wicked and vile things said about people just because they are an opposing political party. Uh, They constantly slander one another. They use unequal weights and standards towards one another. They justify or deny the immorality of those whom they agree with, who are their friends. And you may have enemies who do this as well. And they'll go all in on their opponents who are guilty of the exact same thing. And they may even exaggerate what happened to, re- to run the reputation. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe you've had people who have lived heinously sinful lives and you have friends who justify that, but when they look at you, they accuse you of the smallest thing and just blow it way out of proportion. Uh, they are an enemy. Bear false witness against one another. Um, people who hate one another who are enemies, they, they judge the intent of people's hearts, which only God knows. They are not charitable to them. Um, as we consider enemies, uh, it is important to remember that As a church, we have no allegiance to a singular political party. Our allegiance is to our Lord. Our hope is not in a political leader. Our hope is not in our judges or rulers. Our hope is in Christ who eternally holds the office of king. So we must remember that as we confront those who have different political opinions as we do, no matter how evil they may be. We can hate ideologies, There are plenty of evil ideologies to hate, but we must not hate fellow image bearers created by by God. So enemies can be uh, anyone, and they can be an enemy for a host of reasons. Um, Maybe you have an enemy, and it's not because of anything that they've done to you personally, even though uh, maybe you just consider them to be an enemy, even though there's no uh, true justification for it. Um, What I mean is, have you manufactured enemies of your own, even though they've not done any harm to you. Uh, One sin in particular that can lead us to make enemies of our own and harbor hatred or resentment towards our dearest friends, families, and even brothers and sisters in Christ um, is coveting or being envious of the gifts of another. That is to paraphrase the Baptist Catechism, it is to be discontent with our own estate and grieve at the good of our neighbors. So do you have any manufactured enemies in your life that they don't hate you, but you just really don't like them, and it's because you're envious of them and you covet what they have? Do you uh, covet those um, who have jobs that you think you might be more qualified for? And maybe you are more qualified for them, but God has not given it to you. Uh, maybe you've, um, has God given spiritual gifts uh, to others that you believe he should, have, he should have given to you instead? But God didn't give it to you. He gave it to someone else. Is it some sort of material possession that you believe you deserve, yet someone who you deem less worthy has received it instead? Have you made people your enemies around you by coveting them? This can take many different uh, shapes. And forms. We need to know that envy and coveting is destructive. And if we are not, uh, if, and we are all able to fall prey to it if we are not careful and mindful of this sin that sits deep within our hearts. Um, I know that there are people who endure hard providences. Certainly, that is a fact of life. And I don't want to diminish any of the hard providence that people have endured. But what I want us to be aware of also is that when hardship comes upon you, uh, it will often prove, it so- prove itself to be an occasion for this particular sin. I do not have right now, and I want to have, and so I do not like this person that has what I want. 
Um, but ultimately, God is the one who gives to each person. And whenever we uh, become envious of those who have, um, we breed contentment or contempt and hatred in our heart towards others and towards God. And it will create division, and you will likely begin to think the person you are envious of is, is doing things to spite you when they have no idea that you're offended by them, right? You can begin to demonize people who you're envious of, thinking that they do things on purpose to cause you harm. That's not the case at all. They're just living their life. You just don't like them. So we must remember that our Lord is sovereign over all things. Nobody has anything that's apart from God's decree, and when we become envious of someone, we are accusing God of being an unjust God who has not given you what you deserve. And what we must remember is that we deserve hell. Yet the Father gave us his Son to die in our place. Even though we still sin, he has lavished us with so many temporal blessings, we cannot keep count. And so remember this, uh, envy, coveting is a vile sin. There's no place for it in the church, whereby we make each other enemies and grow to hate one another. Um, let's put this forth today. If there is any who are envious today, my prayer is that you'd be repent and that you'd find satisfaction in Jesus. Especially in the midst of any hard providences that may have come upon you. Um, but all that to say, as we consider uh, enemies of people who hate us and manufacturing enemies of our own and being envious of them, um, our enemies can take many forms. They can be people who hate us for a multitude of reasons, and we are also capable of manufacturing enemies of our own, of our own and hating them for various reasons. Um, I don't have the time to go through every single scenario, uh, how this can play out. Um, but we do know that however this plays out in your life, whatever enemy you have, uh, whether someone hates you or you do not like someone else, we are reminded here that we are commanded to love them and not hate them. We are to love our enemies and not hate them. What does it mean to love somebody, especially someone who hates you? What does that look like? Uh, well, I know that we are likely familiar with the three different uh, Greek words, or there's a few more Greek words used to distinguish love. Uh, you have uh, eros, which is a romantic, sensual love. Uh, philia, which is a, a brotherly affection, close friends or family. Uh, but the word used here in verse 44 that our Lord Jesus uses is agapate. You recognize agapate, which is Agape, I think we know that word. Uh, this is an unconditional love. It's an unconditional love, meaning it is to act in the best interest of people who have done nothing to deserve it. They have no merit or worthiness to receive compassion. The person who loves us unconditionally is the person who loves unconditionally is committed to seeking the best interest of those around them, and that even extends to their enemies to love their enemies unconditionally. For those of you who are up uh, with the times of the 90s contemporary uh, Christian music scene, uh, there was a famous band called DC Talk. I don't know if anybody remembers these guys at all. I'm probably showing my age now, I guess. Uh, they had a song called Love is a Verb. It was very corny lyrics. Not my favorite song, but... That is true, <laughs> that uh, love is a verb in a sense that there is an action behind um, our love, that we are to do things. Um, agape is a type of love that is proven by action. It's something that we pursue even when our affections would tempt us to do otherwise. It is to do good to those who offends us. When someone does an evil act toward us, we are not to repay evil for evil. Rather, we are to do good to those who do evil to us. And likewise, when tragedy befalls our enemies, when they undergo loss, even though it will cause harm to our enemies, um, when tragedy befalls our enemies, when they undergo loss, even if they would rejoice if that same thing happened to you, you do not rejoice that it happens to them. Right? You want to love them and help them when tragedy comes upon them. We, do not, we ought not take delight when the wicked uh, despair. 
We ought to pity them and seek to help them. Uh, we have clear instructions of what it means to love someone without condition. This is the famous wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These are actions that accompany love. To say that you love somebody and then are envious of them, or that you rejoice when something bad or difficult comes upon them, or to be impatient with them is not to love them. That's to be inconsistent. You're actually hating them. You can say you love them, but you're not, you're not really caring about their estate or their person. Uh, we see also that uh, love is an act in Proverbs twenty-five twenty-one. If your enemy is hungry, what do you do? You give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. We are to give bread to our enemies who are hungry, and we are to be patient towards those who are impatient with us. Kind to those who are rude to us. We are uh, to love those unconditionally who may conditionally love you. Ultimately, we are to show a love of benevolence, a benevolent love. You may be familiar with that term. We have a benevolence fund in this church. Uh, we, we actually call it a mercy ministries fund in our, in our budget. And that money goes uh, towards, towards goodwill. It goes towards our neighbors who are hardship for the people in the church and people outside the church who are in need. Uh, we are to have unconditional goodwill, not only for our neighbors, but also for our enemies. Uh, this is really, really hard. This is really easy to stand up here and say and to confess to one another, but this is really difficult when it gets into the nitty-gritty of actually having to practice what we know we ought to do. Uh, we can spend months and years studying theology and striving to understand some of the complexities of, of Scripture. Right? We consider the simplicity of God, the immutability of God, consider the Trinity and what that means. We can have our minds uh, consider these high doctrines. Um, and it's good to learn those things, but learning is not nearly as difficult as it is to wrangle our wills into compliance with the commands of God. We can mentally assent to biblical truths, but when it comes to practicing them, Practicing what we know to be true, um, it is very, very difficult. It's the clear commands of Jesus that are very hard for us to put into action. We are to love our enemies and do good, do good for them. Not only are we to do good for them, but we are also to pray for them. Not only are we to have unconditional benevolent love for enemies, in verse 44, we are told that we are to pray for our enemies. Uh, this is even harder to pray for enemies. So why should we pray for enemies? Well, remember that when we pray, we aren't changing God's mind. Instead, when we pray, our minds are changed. We are shaped by prayer. And it's really awful hard to hate someone who occupies your prayer life. It's awful hard to hate someone who you spend time praying for. And likewise, it's also really hard to Pray for someone that you really hate. <laughs> and when you go to God to pray for someone you hate, your sins are exposed at that moment, are they not? You are cut open deeply, and it can bring you to a time of confessions, of confession and repentance, confessing that I cannot stand this person, and I wish that I, I could feel the other way. You may find yourself saying, Lord, I do not like this person. He or she has done nothing but wicked things to me, but I know it's evil for me to hate them. And so you might confess, forgive me and help me to love them with the benevolent love that you show your enemies. May we all learn to pray for enemies as Christ did on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You may pray for our enemies. Uh, what can we pray for enemies? What do we pray for over our enemies? Well, we can pray for their salvation. This is the most loving thing that we can do for our enemies, right? Is interceding for them and going before the throne of God in prayer with hope that God would save them from his wrath and draw them to repentance. While your enemy curses you, while their enemy 
while your enemy speaks curses over you, you go before God and ask that he would bless them by regenerating their heart so they may experience and know the joy of salvation that we have received. Our God is gracious and compassionate, and God may very well be pleased to use your prayers as a means to soften their hearts and call those wretched sinners to repentance. We can pray that the Lord would restrain them from doing evil as well. If they are truly evil, wicked people causing harm to others, pray that God would save them and restrain them from doing evil. It is good and loving for wicked people to be restrained from committing evil acts, especially when those evil acts result in the death of innocent people. Even if it means that our Lord would take them from this world. Uh, We again see this in the imprecatory Psalms. But as we pray through imprecatory psalms, be very careful and check your hearts. Um, as we pray for the destruction of the wicked, we must not pray for our own personal vengeance. Again, we don't pray for our own personal vengeance to be enacted, but rather we come to God and trusting him as the one who is just to do what is right. We must have the glory of God in view as we pray for those who intend harm upon others. Uh, We pray that uh, God would be glorified in bringing sinners to himself and that he'd be glorified in judging the wicked. And so as we pray for our enemies, uh, pray that the Lord would save them or that he would remove them from their position and keep them from harming others. Um, I often pray, Lord, save them. But if you will not save them, if their hearts are hardened to the point that they will not hear your call, may you execute your righteous judgments on your enemies. Do what you will. I entrust it to you, O sovereign Lord. I think we can pray over this way over enemies because we love life. Right? We love righteousness. If there are people who are destroying life, it is very good to ask the Lord to keep them from destroying life and causing harm to people. <clears throat> so we are to pray for enemies that they would repent of their sin, that they come to Christ, or that the Lord would limit their arm, that they might not cause harm to others around them. Well, then who can we pray for as we consider enemies? Well, there's many people. All your enemies. You can pray for um, our president, who is an enemy of the church. You can pray for pretty much anyone who in government who's an enemy of the church. We can pray for um, college campuses. I know we are all familiar with the court case that happened over the past few years with our brother. Uh, There are those who teach uh, Marxism, identity politics, critical race theory, and they diminish the work that Christ has done on the cross. Um, pray for them that the Lord would save them. Pray for your family members. Pray for your neighbors who encroach on your property or maybe not respect your property. Pray for your spouse when your spouse becomes an enemy. Should that ever happen? Pray for those who slander your name and attack your beliefs. Pray for those who hate you. Pray for those who you may have become envious over. Pray for those who you consider to be enemies, but they don't count you to be an enemy. Repent and pray for them and be thankful for what God has given you and celebrate in the good that he has done to them. We are to persist in loving and praying for our enemies. Charles Spurgeon says this in regards to loving our enemies. Ours it is to persist in loving, even if men persist in enmity. We are to render blessing for cursing, prayers for persecutions, Even in the cases of cruel enemies, we are to do good to them and pray for them. We are no longer enemies to any, but friends to all. We do not merely cease to hate and then abide in cold neutrality, but we love where hatred seems inevitable. We bless where our old nature bids us curse, and we are active in doing good to those who who deserve to receive evil from us. So we've heard the teachings of the Pharisees, and we've heard the teachings of Jesus in contrast to their false teachings. And now I want to look at the reasoning our Lord gives us um, to love our enemies and to pray for them. This is the the third heading, uh, the reasons that Jesus gives. First, it's in verse 45, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So first, Jesus gives us, or the first reason Jesus gives is so that we may be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Uh, not that we earn our salvation. Right? We, we've, dis- we've already discussed that. The point here is that we would look like 
our Father, that we look like our Heavenly Father. The reasoning is, is that if we are God's children, then we will want to imitate our Heavenly Father. So what is our Heavenly Father like? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. To see the mercy of God in this. Our Lord doesn't just tell us, our Father in heaven does this and leaves it at that, although um, he could. Rather, he gives us visible evidence and illustration so we can see and know that it is in fact true that God is gracious and merciful to, to his creatures. We have a daily reminder when we wake up that our Lord loves his creation. And he loves his creation with a benevolent love, just are we to love our enemies with a benevolent love. See verse 45, for he makes a sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So the picture we have here is one of two farms. Uh, there is a righteous farmer and there is an unrighteous farmer. Yet both farmers, our God and his divine providence and benevolent love for his creation causes the sun to shine on the both of them. They both bask in the sunlight and enjoy the common graces that God has placed upon them. They both receive rains that their crops may grow. God has goodwill towards both unconditionally. Um, I've, I've seen this personally years ago before I got married. I was working on night shift. Um, I would go up on the hill across from the river here. I would grab some breakfast and I'd watch the, uh, watch the sunrise in the morning before going to bed. And I would look over the town and notice two distinct places where people had learned uh, one is Grace Community Church, where they preach the gospel and righteousness. They love God and they love his people. And then you have uh, Shawnee State University over here who um, does not care for God's people very much. Uh, though there are Christians in that establishment as a whole, uh, they are enemies of Christ and the church. And as I would look and see both institutions, you see God's kindness on the entire city of Portsmouth. You see rain clouds come in cover the entire town they leave you see the sunshine everyone out and about in their cars god's given them blessings to drive to and from work they've been given food and yet you have two institutions one righteous and one unrighteous and they are cared for by the benevolent love of god when you see your enemies see how god has been kind to them they have blessing the blessing of friends they have families they have jobs. They have all that they need. God has given them air for their lungs, even though they use that same breath to blaspheme his name. The Lord knows the thoughts of men continually, yet he lets them live. And he even lets the wicked enjoy his gift of creation. What a merciful God. That he would let the evil continue on enjoying the things in creation. Now, I want to make a, a careful distinction here. Some people would say to this passage, see, God loves everyone. Therefore, we are all children of God, and that is not true. Everyone has been created by God, but not everyone is a child of God. And so you have this benevolent love that God has for all of his creation, and yet there is a love that is reserved only for the people of God, and that is his love of complacency. Complacency. Here, um, Complacency doesn't mean indifference, as most of us consider it today. Uh, rather, it means that he takes delight or pleasure in his people. Or God delights and takes pleasure in his people who are his, because he ultimately takes delight in his son. And if we are in Christ, we get all the benefits of being in Christ, including receiving the complacent love of God. So the first reason Jesus gives us for having a benevolent, benevolent love for enemies is because God has a benevolent love for his enemies. And the second reason he gives is so that we may be set apart from the world. God loves his enemies with a measure, and we are to be set apart from the world. Verse 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying, what good is it if you behave like unbelievers? The worst of the worst live by that exact same principle being taught by the religious. Consider that. The, the 
the evil people would agree with what the religious Pharisees were saying. Hate your enemy. Yes, obviously you hate your enemy. That's what the wicked people would say. And this is, in fact, uh, the, really the ethic of our society at large. Right? Love your friends. Be there for them. Be faithful to them. But hate your enemy. That is what our society and culture believe. We hear it all, all the time. I hear it all the time at work. Old Jim over there, he's a great guy. If you're on his good side, but you don't want to be on his bad side, he'll be a terrible enemy to you. And they say that with, uh, with admiration, as if it's a good thing to hate your enemy. As if it's a good thing to seek harm upon those who do harm to you. But our Lord says, no, that's not worthy of honor. Wicked people behave that way, but you should not. Our Lord instructs us not to be like the world, but to do good to all people throughout the world, many of whom are unworthy of such good if judged by their own merit. And we have in Scripture good reason for, treat, for treating the people this way. God teaches that all people are created in the image of God. We do not regard individuals according to their own merits, but by the image of God which is stamped upon them by their Creator. As Christians, we have a fundamental difference in our worldview from that of unbelievers, and that is that all people in the world are created in the image of God. And so we are to stay consistent with that worldview, and not just the worldview, that is a truth, uh, that we are to be uh, set apart, a holy people, and be generous to those who hate us, to love those who hate us and persecute us. And then verse 40, 48, Jesus tells us, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, some here would downplay the word perfect and say, Well, Lord, Jesus knows that we cannot be perfect in our sinful flesh, so therefore he doesn't really mean perfect. It just means sort of perfect. Uh, but Jesus didn't say sort of perfect. He said you must be perfect uh, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, we know that we can't be perfect by our own merit, but nonetheless, we have a high command given to us to strive for perfection. Nonetheless, we have a command to strive for perfection. We have been saved uh, for good works. We must remember that and must make a profession. Um, we must make a profession of godly living. That is a, a career, make a career of godly living. Just as we are told to be holy as God, our Father is holy, so too are we called to be perfect as God is perfect. Uh, though we are saved by... Um, Although, while we are saved by the merits of Christ and not our own, we do bear the name of Christ. We belong to him, and as such, uh, we belong to Christ. We have a Christian duty to strive for perfection. Um, so, in closing, just some final thoughts of, as we consider the things that we have read this morning. Um, for the unbeliever, if there be any unbelieving among us, and this would even refer to children who are here who are listening, if you do not know, Christ as your Savior. Savior. In light of God's benevolent love, which is his good will toward his creation, though you blaspheme his name and break every command he has given, he has been kind to you. Though you have never called out to God in prayer, he has given you food. Though you have never asked for the sunlight or the rain, he has not withheld the sunlight and rain from you. He has, not, he has let you enjoy his common grace, which is extended to all creation, even though you have not asked for them or given thanks for them. He has, uh, has, his, has not his patience and his compassion been proven to you, even though you unbelieve in God. If he has not denied you the temporal blessing that you have never asked for nor deserve, do you think God will deny you his spiritual blessing if you call upon him, call, call upon him for mercy? Do you think he will deny you his son if you call upon the name of the Lord? Has God's mercy not been proven to you already and him being merciful to you even though you never asked him? Surely, if you look to Christ and cry out for forgiveness of sins, he will extend that to you. There will be a day of judgment. And if you have sinned, you will face judgment. And as R.C. Sproul once said, what you need to survive the judgment of God and his holy law is nothing less than perfection. And if you don't have it, you better find a place to get it 
And the only place I know to get it is in Christ who kept the standard of perfection. To the unbeliever, free grace is extended to you now. Or to, um, to anyone who would hear. Will you repent and believe or will you harden your heart to a God who has already proven his kindness to you and promises salvation to those who come to him in faith? And so for the believer, um, how do we respond to our enemies when they curse us? When they persecute us and say all kinds of evil things about us? Well, we've heard it really all, all morning. We don't get even with them. We don't repay evil for evil. The children of the devil do that, but we are children of God. We stand there silently if we have to. Take it on the chin. We love them unconditionally and we pray for them. So how can we take it on the chin? Well, there's two truths I want to remind you of. God is the judge and we are not. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. We do not have to take justice into our own hands because our Lord will administer justice perfectly. We can trust God to do what is right. Our Christian vocation is not to get even. Our Christian vocation is to trust and obey our God. And our God has told us to love our enemies and pray for them. The second truth I want to remind you of is that you are no different than your enemies. You are a sinner as well. You too are in need of grace and mercy just like your enemies. And maybe the words of Jesus have reminded you just how high God's standard of perfection is. If that is so, Run to perfection. Run to Christ. Not your own feeble attempts at perfection. Don't run to them. Run to Christ. In Christ there is forgiveness, perfect righteousness, and they are all perfectly forgiven. They are all perfectly given to those who believe upon him. So as we consider our enemies, if this seems like a, a, a tall order, remember that the Holy Spirit dwells inside you. Right? It's not by your own work or efforts that you can accomplish these things, but the Holy Spirit living in you it will help you, assist you, and give you aid as you strive to wrangle in your sinful wills. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And don't manufacture enemies of your own. And if you have enemies, seek to be peace, peaceable with them. Seek to reconcile with them in the same way that we were once enemies with God, and he has um, reconciled us to the Father and Jesus Christ coming and dying for those who were once his enemies. Um, with that said, let's go to the word of God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth, and we ask that the truth that uh, we have heard this morning be planted deep into our hearts, and that you would help us to be um, saints who love God and love those who hate us. We ask that you'd help us to be peacemakers, that we would not find ways to create enemies or provoke others around us to anger for the sake of it. But Lord, um, if we have enemies by virtue of our preaching Christ, then Lord, help us to um, do good unto them and resist temptation that comes when those seek to do harm to us. And we ask that you would be glorified in our lives and this church body. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.